Hello, Agnes. Hi, Robin. Today, we're talking about a reading that I picked called Inadequate Equilibria. It's a whole book, which is longer than the reading you picked, so I apologize for its length. And I have to disclaim that it's uh, written by an associate of mine. He was a co-blogger with me for many years and someone I'm fond of. But nevertheless, uh, we both read it. And now uh, I should ask you uh, for your immediate summary and take. Yeah, I had a one-sentence summary I wanted to give, which is, um, our systems are broken, so I'm allowed to trust my reason. That's the argument of the book <laughs> as I see it, right? Um, so there's some kind of prima facie problem with reasoning your own way to problems, like trying to think through problems and come up with theories. You're, there's, some, there's some thought that you're not allowed to do that unless you're living in a broken world. And then, so then the first part of the book is like, you are living in a broken world. Uh, and then here are the ways that it's broken. And the second part of it is that's why it's okay to trust your reason. So I, I wrote a, a, a blog review of the book uh, years ago. And um, one of my main points was just, it's basically two different books, which aren't very connected. The first, but those those two little clauses of your sentence the first book is the book of the title, uh, you know, how, where and how civilizations get stuck. And the second part is why then that you should be allowed to trust your reason <laughs> or to disagree with other people, why you're justified in disagreeing with others. And uh, both of those parts of the book have a lot of discussion, but there's not actually much connection between the two. <laughs> it okay, doesn't really say, say why. Yes. So... If you were living in a society that had um, uh, like optimized all of its forms of coordination um, so that everybody on every purpose was like coordinating as well as possible, that would include informational coordination. Um, and um, so in that world, you wouldn't be allowed to think for yourself. Um, because instead of trying to think through something, what you should think is the total product of your society thinking through that thing would be better than yours. Well, so close, I'd say. Um, that is, you would inherit a consensus on a wide range of topics that would yeah. be pretty good. And then you would be able to make minor changes, but you would be able to make them. So, uh, you know, he discusses financial markets as a prime example of a place that you should trust. And uh, that means you shouldn't think the financial market prices are wildly wrong or that you can easily double your money in a year by uh, your clever insight, right? <laughs> Nevertheless, the way that entire world functions to improve is that individuals contribute to it. <laughs> that is individual traders do find a little bit of information and make a little bit of trade and make a minor adjustment to it. So, each of them needs to believe that, in fact, they are making a small improvement on average, and the net effect is improvement, collecting all these small contributions. But you just couldn't believe you you had a that had a huge mistake, and that you were it was very wrong, and you had a big update. I I, I think actually this, I think that's right, but I think the thing he's even he's more interested in is not it's, it's both can you make a large correction, but also can you kind of make corrections all over the place. Like right. you, have to, you have to specialize, right? Right. So and the financial people to... will specialize. Like they, they will find one very particular area and I try to improve that and leave everything else to everyone else. So the so so you're right that if 
uh, if we were adequate, then you'd only be able to make narrow, small improvements. But conversely, it's not true that if the world is broken, that you need to disagree with people. That is, the world could be broken and everybody could just know that. And when you claimed that you had a new insight or a deviation, everybody would say, well, of course you can do that. Of course that's possible because the world's broken. So, uh, but that's not the world we live in. So that's to me, the, to, to me, the interesting connection is uh, that in addition to the world being broken, we believe it's not, or we think it's not, or we say it's not. And that's the lever that would force him to then, in order to take advantage of a broken world or to improve on a broken world, at least for himself, uh, he needs to reject that large shared consensus. The, the shared consensus is that we believe that it isn't broken? That isn't very broken, yes. So... I think I just didn't follow. So, 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 so we could take take one of his favorite his favorite example in the book is when his wife was having trouble with dark, and uh, you know they they tried these simple fixes to winter being dark and made modest light improvements, and then they moved to a light continent for a while, and that helped. But the small lights in their apartment didn't help, and so he thought, well, let's just make a lot more lights in the apartment. Yeah, and that worked. But he says the literature doesn't seem to represent that as a possibility. And you might say, well, there's all these doctors who specialize in this problem. They don't talk about it. What makes you think you could come up with some improvement here where they haven't? So uh, that would be this widespread perception that uh, he couldn't come up with such an improvement because they're presuming that the world of doctors recommending how to deal with dark problems uh, is not sufficiently broken, right? It's the believing that the world is broken that then emboldens him to try this radical fix, uh, whereas most people wouldn't do that because they wouldn't believe that. Sure, I, I think that's right, but that establishes the connection between the two parts of the book. That is um, right. Uh, so that's what, that's what I'm saying. What I think the strongest connection is. Okay, is so, that so we're right, living in both... a world where people where people don't believe it's broken. Right. They don't okay. talk as so, if it's broken. Right. Right. So it's both that the world is broken uh, and that because people don't believe that, everyone's not going around trying to fix it. Right. They're not as aggressive or eager or um, willing to try all these things. So that's, to me, the key connection between the two sides of the book, although he didn't lay this out explicitly. And so uh, I think that helps us think about the second part of the book to the extent we're going to focus on that is when are you justifying and disagreeing? Um, it's when... Wait, sorry, can I just ask ahead. about that? Sure. I mean, suppose that, suppose that people did generally, suppose that people read his book, right? And lots and lots of people are convinced. And so they all do their own, like, you know, he has a kind of like, do it yourself ethos, like do it yourself medicine, do it yourself um, dieting, do it yourself, right? right. Suppose that people adopted this do it yourself ethos. It still could be the case that it wouldn't be so easy to sort of like aggregate all the information that they got from their do-it-yourself trials so that the right. system would remain broken and it would remain true that it would yes. be reasonable for people to trust their reason. So that shows that your yes. premise, which is that most people don't believe that it's broken, isn't actually doing work. So there's the difference between 
sort of being willing to explore something and disagreeing with other people that that so you could say you know as soon as we heard that he had this idea for lights we could have all said yeah why don't you try that that sounds like a good idea mm-hmm. and then we wouldn't be disagreeing with him but we would be still supporting his attempt to reason for himself so thinking for yourself isn't the same as disagreeing so that's the key distinction to make here what do you, when do you think you count as disagreeing with someone well, so <laughs> I've had a bunch of papers that I've published on the topic of the rationality of disagreement. And so there's this large literature, a lot of which has been done by philosophers. And so one of my papers title is you can't foresee to disagree or, or the title of a blog post, at least uh, summarizing that. So uh, people ask, can you agree to disagree? And there's a famous uh, economics paper from long ago, a Nobel prize winner, uh, on that. And so agreeing to disagree would be some situation where we're all fully aware that we disagree and nevertheless, we disagree. And my variation is you can't foresee to disagree in the sense that um, if you're about to have a new opinion, I don't know what it is. I can believe that it will be different than mine, but I can't predict in which direction it will be different. So I can completely accept that you will go learn something and that the thing you learn will change your mind and therefore you will disagree in the future with what I believe now. So it's not, I don't have trouble with expecting that difference or disagreement, but I can't predict it. I can't foresee it. So then in this context, uh, you might you know, tell Eliezer to go ahead and think about it and come up with something. And you might think that whatever he came up with was reasonable and it would differ from what you think right now. And there'd be that disagreement, but that wouldn't be a problem. That wouldn't be agreeing to disagree. Right. But that didn't really answer my question, which is when do people, what I mean is, um, what does it take for two people to count as disagreeing? So suppose someone on one continent believes P. Right. And someone over on the other part of the world believes not P, right? And they're never going to meet. In right. fact, so that's... the one guy has never asserted P and the other guy has never asserted not P. Right. It's just that they would be disposed to assert those things under the relevant circumstances. You might think, that's not really disagreement. Right. You're right. It's not disagreement. So okay. that's the key point about agreeing to disagree is the puzzle, not disagreeing. So right. merely so, having so, two estimates isn't, isn't the puzzle. It's being fully aware that you have the two different estimates. That's the puzzle. So let, let's start with this. It's possible for people to disagree. Do you agree with me about that? <laughs> of course. Not? Of course. Oh, okay. Good. So sometimes people actually, in fact, disagree. Uh, it's not just when they're on two different continents, but presumably when they're engaged in some kind of shared intellectual enterprise? Like they're trying to figure something out and they don't think the same thing about it. And they well, know that the other thing's the different thing. The word disagreement is a bit ambiguous, which is why we're using these more precise versions. So uh, I would take disagree in a broad sense to just mean you have different estimates, even if you're not even aware of them. So, but you, you might just say, well, that's not a disagreement. That's just a difference of opinion. Fine. <laughs> difference of opinions exist uh, when two people have different opinions. And then you might say, they disagree in a context where there's some sort of conversation between them about it. And then we could, that's still not quite strong enough for these theoretical results to apply. And so the more precise thing we talk about is common knowledge of a difference of opinion. Okay. But um, I I, I guess uh, um, the thing I'm interested in is disagreement, not difference of opinion. Or common knowledge of it. Uh, I am interested in common knowledge of it. 
And I think that is, I don't think it counts really as a disagreement unless there is common knowledge of it. Um, and I think that that's, um, uh, it seems to me that's both possible and rational to disagree in that way. And not only is it, not only is it rational for people to disagree, it's rational for people, it seems to me, because I do it all the time and I think I'm rational <laughs> in doing it, right. to intentionally disagree. That is to deliberately adopt the opposing view simply because it's the view that is opposed to the person who you're talking to. Um, and, so, and there's something that there's something that Elliot talks about at the end of the paper where he talks about this danger of um, not wanting to rush the process of agreement. Right. You might think like the actual real world problem is that people agree much too easily with one another. Uh, and that the rational thing to do is to intentionally disagree. That is to adopt the opposing position so as to inquire into the truth. So I'm going to take the philosopher's stance here in this sort of conversation, which is to say, well, let's pause and make sure we're clear about our terminology because that is issue. So again, there's a difference of opinion where people have different, but we even want to distinguish opinions. So one kind of opinion would be the thing you would say to prompt and further a discussion. The thing you might say to get would people to react that would uh, get people to respond. The thing that you might defend that's one kind of opinion. And then another kind of opinion is the thing you would act on when substantial stakes were, were, were in play, right? And so uh, this, this about difference of opinion in this book is primarily about that second concept about you know, the actual beliefs you would have to take substantial action. And it's not primarily about what you might say to further a discussion. So the, the puzzle, I mean, it's, it's completely understandable why in order to make a discussion go forward, you might take different positions and explore their conflict, uh, but you don't necessarily have to be inclined to take different actions uh, outside the conversation because you took that conversation strategy. Okay. I mean, I think that in, an, in a really honest disagreement of the kind that I'm describing, you would be committing yourself to that position until it gets refuted, right? So... Um, uh, and you would take action on it if it never got refuted. Like, that's what it is. You're exploring this idea and you're like, you're going to stake your claim in there until until it's proven wrong, which presumably if you can think of arguments against it, it easily will be, but still. Um, but in any case, it seemed, the reason I brought up this whole thing of disagreement is that you were talking about how, um, you know, the question I, I said, even if um, everybody believed the first part of the book, the, the second, it would still be rational to trust your own reason because we wouldn't necessarily be able to aggregate all the information that people got from their individual trials. And then you were saying, well, the issue was um, about disagreement um, and whether or not you disagreed with what most people thought. And that's why I thought, okay, well, now we're talking about arguing rather than mere differences of opinion. So uh, my actual favorite example of the broken world is nothing that Eliezer mentioned in his book, but is really easy to grasp, which is on the freeway, when you're driving past a city, there are often signs which say which exit to get off at to reach particular destinations like a stadium or or a convention center or something like that. And those signs are often just not the fastest way to get there. They are some site, our official advice right up there on the road, but your GPS or your map will quite often tell you another route is better. Okay. Now, if we all know this fact, then if I'm sitting next to you while you're driving and you don't follow the advice on the sign, I 
don't have a criticism for you. I don't disagree with you because I figure, well, of course, those signs are wrong <laughs> often. And you are taking a different exit because you have another reason. And you are, in a sense, disagreeing or being at odds with this advice that civilization is giving you on the sign. But if we all know that advice is not very reliable, then among ourselves, we won't be disagreeing about the actions you take defying the sign. So that, that would be my concrete example of how in a world where we all accepted uh, the world is broken and the signs are wrong, <laughs> then we will all you know, be fine with somebody else defying and ignoring the sign. So there's a lack of disagreement there. So, so we're talking there about disagreement in my sense, that is verbal argumentation. That's what's important here. Because I think you keep going back and forth on whether that's- but, I mean both, but I guess I sitting next to you won't disagree with your choice to pass. I won't have a difference of opinion regarding your choice to pass the exit that had the sign saying we should get off there. I see. So, 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 so your thought is um, um, uh, in the world where we all read the first part of Eliezer's book and uh, were convinced by it, there would be a set of verbal disagreements that didn't happen. Whereas in the world where we don't, we have those disagreements if somebody uh, so, so the person who trusts their own reason in the first in the world where um, um, we haven't read the book, they have to have a bunch of arguments that the other person doesn't. That, that, that seems to me a trivial difference and insignificant difference between the two. Like, so is it just like, well, well I mean, arguments like resulting from their sincere. Be- I mean, that their sincere beliefs differ and then they argue as a result. So I'm equating those two in this context. I'm saying in one world. We think the signs are right, and we assume that usually. And if so somebody defies the sign, they're likely to get pushback from other people around them saying, how do you think you know better than the sign? They're, they're having verbal verbal disputes. Driven by differences of opinion. Well, Not it, just it, an attempt it, to discuss it, There could it, right? well be differences of opinion in the, uh, in the world where none of us believe the sign. We could have different ideas about how to get there, right? It's just that we don't know about them. We don't have the verbal disputes about them. Or we, we, they're a different character of disagreement. So uh, again, you know, he's focusing on this kind of disagreement where there's some sort of authority and the authorities have a certain stance and that you're supposed to go along with the authorities because the authorities know better. So a great many of his examples are of that form. You know, the doctors recommended one thing or the uh, bankers, the monetary policy people said another, et cetera. And so, uh, the, I mean, he often, and in, in the latter part of his book, he talks about it as sort of a status, um, you know, policing issue that we often frame these things in terms of who do you think you are to, to put yourself up against these authorities? Yeah, I mean, to me, this is just, it's very odd that it would come down to this, like, like um, some kind of allergy to verbal disputes or something is like what comes down to like what if you like having verbal disputes like what if that's a plus for you then you would be more likely to do the do-it-yourself lifestyle in the world where nobody read the first part of the book so i'm I'm not sure we're disagreeing so i guess we should just make (laughs) sure we go methodically through the possible positions here uh you know so so we agree i think on what it means for a world to be broken 
Uh, and well, we actually don't know that we agree about that. We haven't really discussed. We rough, well, we're, we've been presuming that, I guess. Yes. So, a broken world is one where um, the the sort of messages you will get from the usual authorities are not very trustworthy in the sense that if you have substantial stakes and um, are willing to spend some time thinking about it, there's a substantial chance that you'll be able to come up with something better. Wait, can I ask about that? Because I don't, we probably don't agree okay. about it because I don't okay. agree with the first part of the book. Uh, All right. So or I've just been, I've just been holding right, it. Right, right. Well, no, no, that's, that's fine. Yeah. Okay. I thought that was your big problem. So I thought I would solve that for you, the connection between the two. Um, but uh, uh, so it seems to me that what he notes is that like with his wife, um, you know, when she had this seasonal affective disorder, he was able to improve on the medical establishment. But he doesn't tell you like all the cases when he wasn't able to improve. Like I bet he's been to the doctor a lot of times and I bet a lot sure. of times the doctor said the right thing. In fact, he even gives an example of that. Right. Of when he thought he saw his girlfriend saw these spots and he thought he could diagnose better than the doctor and he didn't. Right, uh, right. So it's like, I think that what he shows you is that our system has like systematic failures. Like it's going to fail in many cases, but it's going to succeed in many, many, many cases. And right. maybe it's just succeeding in many more cases. And so like, it's a teeny, teeny, tiny little bit broken. Why not think it's a, just like with the Bank of Japan, like, okay, that was, that was crazy. And that was like, that was like a big mistake. But like, think about all the banks of all the countries of all the world's most, and think about even Japan at other times, right? So it failed for a little while, but like mostly, most of the time, most of the system succeeds. It's just that there are these little bits and you can focus on those and then say the system is broken. So he's definitely not claiming that, you know, you should just typically disagree with what the authorities say. Right. He's just he's certainly not recommending the contrarian position of just believe the opposite of whatever they say, he, that he thinks that would go very wrong. Uh, or not. He's not even saying believe what they say 50 percent of the time. That is, he right, doesn't but, think that they're worse than uh, right, so, so, only as good as chance. So, I mean, he thinks that being wrong 20 percent of the time is a really big problem. <laughs> Does he think uh, do you think he thinks the medical establishment in terms of what diseases it diagnoses you with is wrong 20% of the time? Because he doesn't give evidence for that. Right, so he like doesn't it. give evidence for an overall rates at all. Although, I mean, I think we do have <laughs> evidence for overall rates, but he doesn't bring uh, Okay, it but we're looking at the argument of the book. And what okay. I'm saying is, it seems to me a substantial flaw of the first part of the book that he doesn't give evidence for overall rates. So he gives a lot of compelling examples. Yes. And in his dialogue, he sort of goes through some pretty big examples, but of course, um, I'm not sure how much it matters for his thesis, the exact percentage. I mean, he's he's trying to address someone in the position of himself there with his wife, with she has this problem, and he wonders how much might it be worth to go think this through and come up with my own alternative. That's who, that's the person he's trying to address. And yeah, but you it, don't know that you're, when you're that person, you don't know you're in that case, right? So look, imagine my kids, somebody interviews my kids and they're like, tell us all the worst things that your parents did. Tell us all the like bad examples right. of their parenting, right? And my kids list all our terrible examples of parenting. And my kids are like, this system is broken, right? <laughs> my parents just make bad decisions and I got to do this parenting thing myself. I got to p- do my own up- upbringing because clearly my parents, I'm living in a broken system. That would not be a good argument. Right, but he's not making the analogous argument that you throw away the world you live in and go go live in the woods and try to reconstruct your own civilization, right? He, he is he does 
recommend, I think, that you continue living in this civilization, which means that you continue to accept most everything in it. But nevertheless, the question is, if you have a particularly large problem in front of you, uh, how willing should you allow yourself to be to consider that the usual authority's answer might be wrong? Uh, but he, he goes into a lot of discussion about how uh, you should just definitely not, you know, authorize yourself to figure that whatever you think of is probably better. He, he, he talks a lot about that you need to test yourself. That is, you need to find a hypothesis for something about why the authority's advice is wrong and then find a way to test it quickly and, you know, throw it away when it fails the test. But if it passes the test, then, uh, you know, you've, you've got to win. So uh, that, you know, it's not about the initial full confidence that you have an answer, but it's more about being willing to just try things out. But I, I mean, I think he thinks like if his view is, look, when you are dealing with a major calamity in your life, you should be like, you know, kind of holding the world to much higher epistemic standards and be less inclined to trust and thus be more inclined to do your own research. That's common sense. And everybody already does it. That is these parents that he's describing with the babies that have, you know, don't get that like special fluid, like clearly plenty of them actually did their own research, even without reading Eliezer's book. Right. Um, and they did it exact, and they did it for the right. same reason that he did it in the seasonal affective disorder. But apparently most of those babies' parents didn't do that and they died. So <laughs> he, that is a minority of those parents. Right. But you might think, look, the issue is that um, when you're in one of these cases, like the seasonal affective disorder case, you don't know that you're in that case. Right. Um, and so you could well be in the case where um, uh, you know, you will drive yourself insane uh, trying to find your own solution to the problem. So one thing you have to do is make an assessment of which sort of a case you're in. And I'm sure the parents whose babies died did put effort into it, right? They maybe didn't put as much effort as those other parents because it's a hard judgment call. Um, and uh, I, I guess I think, I, I don't see how reading this book would tell one of those parents how much effort to put in. Oh, he's making a judgment that I roughly agree with him that when he's talked to a lot of people in the world over a lot of years, as I have, that when he brings up a suggestion for something that goes against the authority's advice, people at that moment bring up this authority deference issue. Well, that and, makes sense because they're not in a calamity at that moment. And his advice is only take this serious so far is only take this seriously if you're in a calamity. So they're giving I don't the right think calamity is quite the word, but but it's something important enough to you that it's worth thinking about. Right. But uh, it's not important to the people he's talking to. Probably. It's not, not, no, I, so I think in many of these contexts, it was important to the people he was talking to. So he talked mm -hmm. about someone who had a startup, for example. He's mm -hmm. talked to several people who had startups and, and the you know their strategy and his advice that they should try something out and test it. Um, you know, I, I would, I mean, he didn't mention it, but he is like me, a Cryonics customer. And so he would share that uh, contrarian position on that topic, which to, in some sense, is important to everyone or plausibly important to everyone. And, you know, his main research area in his life was this AI risk area, which he thought was very important, but important to everyone, and that people 
sort of shut him down initially by saying the authorities would have been on. If there was really a problem here, the authorities would would have been all over it. So you must be wrong. So I I get that. It's once again, like, as I say, this kind of rationality based rates thing is more of your thing than mine. But it still seems to me I'd want to know. Well, how often are people overconfident as opposed to underconfident? I grant he can find me cases, maybe many, many cases in which people are underconfident, right? But I bet you can also find cases where people are overconfident. And then like, you know, is the idea here like, well, he's going to give you meta advice about how to navigate that in the abstract, whether to be overconfident or underconfident? Like, I I doubt it. Like, I think it's going to be a matter of the the specific case. So to support your position... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, that is, if we if, if we accept the description of this book as these two books, the first on the world is broken, and the second is therefore you can agree to disagree. Um, I wrote a book review, as did Scott Alexander, as did Scott Aronson, and all three of us said, well, that first part of the book is much better than the second. Uh, that is, the world is in fact broken often, and that's an important thing to understand. But they, all three of us took more issue with the second, you know, connected conclusion that therefore you are more authorized to, to uh, disagree with people. So, you know, Scott, for example, you know, discussed how a relative of his, you know, was, or or one of the Scots actually, uh, you know, was tempted to buy timeshares and that they would uh, go listen to a timeshare pitch and, uh, you know, they would see it sound like sounded good. And then people would say like, yeah, but look at all the, the past times when people were fooled by this stuff and have lost consistent money. And, you know, it looks like a pretty bad track record. Maybe you shouldn't trust your judgment here in this case. And, you know, they were saying, you know, trust this wider judgment. And you know, there are lots of, you know, that that's basically this, the situation here is that, um, most of the reviewers, these three reviewers at least, agree that the world is in fact broken, and that's that's a strong message. But how much that authorizes you to defy it in any one case is much less clear. I mean, I, I guess um, as a, I would prefer to rephrase the first part, the world has some imperfections, right? <laughs> that's all he's argued for. Um, but I, I, I'm sorry, there's another thing. The imperfections are somewhat stable. Right. So systematic, their their system there, and they have understandable causes. But I, but I I, I, yeah. I meant to say stable, which is to say that they are not going to get easily self corrected. Which is not the same thing as saying they're not going to get self corrected, because every single one of his examples is one where it either did get corrected or I predict will get corrected. Like people are going to figure this thing out about seasonal effective. Like either it was just a fluke case and his, which is totally possible, right? That this slight thing didn't actually cure her or whatever. Um, uh, or like it'll eventually get figured out and then we'll eventually have those special light bulbs. Maybe we even have them now. Um, or the thing with the babies, like eventually, I think just like the Bank of Japan eventually figured it out. It will just like take longer. Um, but nonetheless, if these, these inefficiencies are in the system, they could stick around for quite a while before they get corrected. That would be what I think he's sort of shown. Um, so the world is imperfect and the imperfections are somewhat sticky. That's what the first part of the book says. Um, how prevalent the imperfections are, like relative to all the ways in which it works, there's nothing about that, right? Just like in the second part, all he says is some people are underconfident, not how prevalent, like how much underconfidence is there relative to how much overconfidence is there. So to me, neither of those two theses as such are that strong. Um, 
the thing that's most interesting about it to me are the specific mechanisms of the stickiness of the imperfections, right? Um, right. I think uh, once you see those mechanisms, you see the possibility that there's a lot more problems than he mentions, right? You see the possibility that this is a much larger problem than these mere examples. Uh, sure, but like, I still feel like it, the, the basic inference in the book, like here's another way, here's a kind of psychoanalytic way to read it is something like, um, it's like, there's like, there's like a little boy who wants to take his toys and go home. And he wants to say, yeah, that I have a good reason for doing that. Cause this place sucks. Right. <laughs> so it's like, um, yeah. um, you might think, look, what you're supposed to do is take these systems, which mostly are awesome and produce great results and try to work within them to improve them a little bit. Right. Um, so like, you know, you and I, we're stuck in the giant system of academia that has like tons and tons of flaws, right? And maybe one day it will collapse because of all, all of its flaws, but until that day we're in it, right? What do we do? Well, we give, you know, students the best advice we can. We teach as well as we can. Um, um, we, um, uh, like we, we don't just like opt out. Right. Um, and, and, and in fact, you might think a big part of why people want status right? Within a system, why there's such a quest for status is that once you have status, you do have some ability to change the system. Now, it's also true that the quest for status turns you into the kind of person who's not going to change the system. So that's a big problem, right? But it's possible to fight it somewhat. And I'm sure you see, as I see around me every day, people who are trying to fight it and improve it, right? And look, if somebody doesn't want to do that, if he doesn't want to improve the system because he thinks it's too broken, even though he has given us statistics about, you know, how broken it is relative to the whole, that's fine. I think you're just allowed to take your toys and go home and think for yourself and come up with theories. And like, if you don't, if you don't want to have a disagreement with me about that, that's okay with me. Um, uh, but it's some, there's some weird thing where it's like, yeah, I want it. I don't want to work within this broken system. I want to think for myself. And also like, you, you know, uh, I somehow am worried you're going to criticize me for that. So I want to produce this justification that, uh, I should be immune to criticism or something from, for that. So, so and it's like, there's too much, there's too much self-justifying. One of the reasons that I suggested this reading for us is that we have previously discussed my many attempts to, uh, you know, diagnose and uh, prognose various big social problems. Yeah. And so uh, this author clearly believes that there are big problems that could be fixed. That is that, there's a lot going wrong. And so if we had better institutions and mechanisms, we could get a big gain from that. So uh, he, he agrees with me in that sense, but he doesn't go numerically, you know, as far as you or I would like to sort of argue that things are substantially broken. Uh, And so I would quantify as saying, yes, things are slowly getting better. And eventually maybe most of the problems will get fixed, but, the rate at which things are getting better is plausibly a factor of a hundred less than it could be. <laughs> if we had better institutions, we would be getting better a hundred times faster. And the opportunity cost of that is enormous. That is, you know, had we been getting a hundred times faster from say a thousand years ago, we would be a lot further along now, uh, or even from 10 years ago, right? <laughs> if we had done a thousand years worth of progress in the last 10 years, then uh, we would have solved so many more of these things. So now, you know, I haven't proven that to you, but I could give some plausibility arguments. But um, fundamentally, 
if that's the level at which things are broken, then there's enormous potential payoff from figuring out how to fix that. And I agree that it's useful to bring that into connection with this um, book, because in a way, right. If you take like his examples, um, the parents and the, um, we should probably say what this example is because people might not have read the book. There's some babies who are born with some rare disease where if they get this special kind of formula, they're fine. But if they don't get that kind, they die. And uh, that special kind of formula is like not FDA approved. Um, so, uh, uh, the, but those parents, some of the parents, right, um, did tons of, re- probably all of them did some research and or most of them did some kind of research and some of them did enough research to learn this fact and, and go and drive to Philadelphia in the one place where you can get this special formula. Um, anyway, so those people are really motivated, right? They're motivated to buck the system. Um, and he, you know, he was motivated when his wife had seasonal affective disorder to like, uh, you know, uh, reinvent the wheel, so to speak. Um, but most people, most of the time are not motivated to do that. And it's rational for them not to be. Um, that is, they're they're taking the correct approach, um, uh, at least as far as like as far as he's argued, right? And so now, suppose you are like, um, look, I have this recipe for how we can burn this system down and have a new system, right? Um, and and then you're bringing this to someone, right? And then the question is, what's the rational response of that person? And suppose they find your arguments convincing. I usually find your arguments pretty convincing. Uh, okay, problem number one, I don't feel motivated. That is, I feel like I don't care. Uh, and uh, I, I'm not saying, I'm not even saying that's that rational judgment. I'm just telling, I'm just reporting my phenomenology. And I think part of it is that um, it doesn't really seem to me that there is anything that I can do about this. Uh, and it doesn't seem like it's a problem for me. Uh, and, I, you know, it may be a problem for everyone together. And then if you were, you were in some way addressing me as part of everyone together, that might move me. But addressing me as an individual, it sort of seems more like what you're trying to do is get me on your team of people who ineffectually think that this would be a better way to do things. And I sort of don't see the point of that. So um, in the chapters where he has the three characters uh, doing their dialogue, yeah, um, you know, he has a spokesman for what he calls a cynical economist explaining to an alien um, all the processes that are causing these things go wrong and the alien is presented as, you know, indignant or, uh, you know, incredulous that that Mm -hmm. things could possibly be this bad. Um, One of the mechanisms he talks about, which is easy to get your head around is the Overton window. Mm -hmm. Uh, He says, well, um, there's just a certain window of policies you're allowed to talk seriously about as a serious person in public and that say the New York Times decides what those are based on their reported judgment about what you would be laughed off the stage if you said, and that that system sort of limits um, what kind of things we can consider. And he says, meta discussion, that is a discussion about how the system itself should change is outside the window. That's, that's beyond the pale for serious policy discussions. And he you know, gives examples of how, you know, when something was finally let into the Overton window, it might take over very quickly because a lot of people thought it was plausible. They just weren't allowed to talk about it. And he has hopes that, say, drug decriminalization will will come within that window sometimes soon. Um, and so that's a 
not only a concrete example of an institution that's problematic, it's an example of exactly what you're talking about, where you're saying, well, if other people were talking about this, then I may be motivated to join them. But if you just want to talk to me privately and it's not in the New York Times, then I want to hear about it. I mean, that's the Overton window. You're applying the Overton window to your own motivations. But let me explain why I'm not. Like, so, so you've argued with me about cryonics. And I would say you've shifted me over, like, like I'm at least 10% more likely to do it than I was before talking to you about it. And the reason is because that's something where I could just choose to do it. Like I could just choose to pay this money and then my brain will be frozen. Right. Uh, I don't view that as like outside the pale of consideration. Like uh, if you were like, I, and I sort of think that if you wanted to propose to me anything that I could do and give me like a good reason why I should do it, um, I think I'd be open to considering it. But instead, what you want to do is have me consider something that where I say to myself, as you're beginning to try to convince me, I say to myself, suppose that Robin were to fully convince me of this and I were to become 100% persuaded of the truth of this claim, what would change? And then I answer myself, nothing. Then I'm like, okay, I don't care, right? So that's how I feel about these things. So what I'm saying is because of because of the Overton window, as you say, I, the, I don't think that my becoming convinced of this actually matters. Whereas my becoming convinced that my doing, getting my brain frozen would be a good idea, that would matter because I could do it. So one thing is that some institutions we might consider would be ones that would break the Overton window obstacle. <laughs> that is, we might be able to overcome this Overton window obstacle by some new once institutions. once we instituted the institution? Yes. But and not beforehand when we would need that in order to institute it. Well, so, I mean, think of Eliezer's things with the lights, right? Yeah. If if at that moment he hadn't thought of, you know, the idea that he could just do it himself, yeah, then he might have had your reaction to say, you know, what what can I do? And right. so the the key idea is that many people are motivated to like figure out how they can improve the world, and they are wondering what to do. And for a lot of these ways that you might be able to improve the world, the limiting factor is actually just doing small-scale trials, like his small-scale trial. And that is the sort of thing people can do, but they have to do it in part out of some altruistic motivation that they're trying to contribute to uh, innovation that will then spread farther. So, I mean, you could participate in small-scale trials of things that if they worked out in small scale trials could spread farther and then make a bigger difference. And that would be, that, that's what, that's in that, that's major, Eliezer's main recommendation as well is consider yourself able to disagree enough to come up with something you could test. And he really emphasizes that of, you know, find things you can test and test often and even test yourself by betting. Right? And he says, you know, don't just think of things. When you think of something, try no way to bet on it because that will really, you know, make it, make you remember when you were wrong and when you were right. Yeah. So like, um, I mean, there now it just sounds like you're sort of giving me advice for like living in a certain way. And at this point I'd be like, well, let me look at the people who have taken Eliezer's advice, right. Including Eliezer. Right. And let me look at how they live and like what giant contributions they've made to humankind and see if that looks like plausible, like if that, that's like a good way. And I, I don't actually, I, I don't know about him. Right. Um, but he does say like, you know, he says something at, towards the end of the book, like, I want to know how far has this modesty approach gotten people, right? Like, um, have they gotten like great performance from modesty, right? And it's like, 
uh, and I want to, well, how much performance have we gotten from rationality? Like if I look at, if I imagine like, I don't know, making bets on whether the they're going to find the Higgs boson and like making my own meal supplements. And like, it seemed like concerning myself a lot with things that are not that interesting or important and wasting my time um, doing these experiments where like, I want to devote my life to like the pursuits that are of significance to me. Um, and, uh, and I think, and I also, I already feel free to think about questions that lots of other people have thought about. In fact, the people have been thinking about for thousands of years. Right. And I have the, the I feel like I, I, I have some kind of hack to get around his problem. Right. Where like, I think it's okay for me to think about the question, like what is being or something where like so many people have been working on this question. I mean, surely if you can make progress, somebody already would have before you and what kind of hubris, I guess I just have that hubris. So I have some like giant, you know, self-hack or something where I don't have to go through all this. I can just ask the questions that interest me and pursue those questions because I think they're interesting and important. Uh, I don't need like an excuse of this kind to do it. So at the end of the book, uh, he talks about who the audience of his book should be Mm -hmm. and what could go wrong if it got into other hands. Yeah. So uh, in some sense, uh, his target audience might be defined perhaps tautologically as the people who are too shy and relatively smart or you know competent and if those people who are relatively shy but also confident if they were to try to think for themselves more and try to do more things that would go well and uh the people who are not too shy they don't benefit much from his advice to uh be less shy they might even push them too far in that direction and the people who are not smarter competent enough uh, their trials won't go very well and so by this description well if he selects his audience right he's guaranteed to help right there should be a still test at the beginning of the book Right. And I would have failed it like on the first question. And then I would know, don't don't read this book. You're already going too far in the other direction. So there should also be a book for people like me, like like stop thinking you can answer all the big questions, like be a be be modest. So we've we started to talk about disagreement. Then we went to talk about inadequacy. If we come back to disagreement. um, So, uh, again, the, the key question is. When are you, should you feel free to agree to disagree or foresee to disagree? And there is this sort of modesty argument he outlines uh, at the very beginning of the book and then in more detail later on, which basically says, uh, you know, how could you know that you are better than someone else at thinking about something? Uh, if, if they're a priori equally qualified to you and you come to different opinions, then what justification do you have for picking yours over theirs? And he is trying to resist that argument. Uh, and so he offers a, a variety of, of arguments, like one that you mentioned, that uh, just merely abstractly trying to disagree left is the wrong way to do it. You should do it organically and authentically by thinking through all the details. Uh, but I think his strongest arguments are, are the ones that just give particular cases and say, look, most everybody disagrees with you on this. Are you really going to go with them? So, or, or like, for example, he says, look, a third of the time we're sleeping. When we're sleeping, we don't usually know we're sleeping. If you ask someone whether there's, when they're sleeping, are you sleeping? They would say no. 
And so you at the moment can't be more than two thirds confident that you're not sleeping because, hey, you know, and of course, all most of us are going to say, no, I'm a lot more than two thirds confident that I'm not sleeping. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm awake. And then they say, well, see, then you're 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 willing to disagree. Or he says, you know, this I other mean, that, that's how most people think. The way I think is, hey, Descartes gave a really good argument that we should be pretty worried about that. And I'm willing to engage that argument. And in fact, I hunt out people who are like. You know, I want to take okay. the position of the but, skeptic, but, or if they but, won't, I'll but, take that position. But do you take the two-thirds position right now, that you're sleeping right now? Um, I think I'm awake right now. Okay, um, but, but at what uh, confidence? Is, is it more than two-thirds? So, like, this is where, like, that's just, that's not a natural way for me to think about myself. Like, if you want to know, what would it take to push you to to assert that maybe you're sleeping right now? It wouldn't be that much. Right. All you'd have okay. to do is be like, I'm sure Descartes wrong. And I'd be like, okay. okay so so clearly the sleeping example is not the one for you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The, the next example though is, is God say, he says, look, you know, okay. clearly most people in the world and certainly even more people in history have believed in God. Okay. But uh, I, so I, I therefore you. In God. So that might not be the one for me either. So maybe let's go to the next <laughs> one. Well, so for the, those two are more persuasive examples for me. Okay. I mean, well, you might even, so I might say, you know, the religion issue isn't, is there some abstract God out there somewhere doing something? I would think the religion issue is more, do the people around us who claim to have some direct connection with God through prayer or sort of telling them things, is that a real actual communication phenomena such that that's an actual explanation for a lot of things we see in the world is that, People are talking to God and he's answering and doing things for them. So, so that's the position on which I would be much more skeptical. I'm happy to grant that in a vast universe, there could be vast powers out there. And maybe they even created the universe or even created, you know, our life on earth or something. But, you know, the, the more skeptical claim, the one I have much more trouble is, is the claim that all, all this huge number of people, they claim that their actual lives are being affected daily by direct communications and interventions. Well, I mean, so the, those are two different claims, right? So like, I think my life is affected by communication with God in that I try to communicate with God. And if I were to stop doing that, my life would be different. Right, but but does, it, do you get communications back? That is, are no. you actually getting messages back? Right. Not that I know of. And right. I uh, like, like God might well intervene in my life, but I don't, uh, I, I think that like, it's very hard for me to understand God or to know what they do. So. Right. So, uh, so the, your position sounds much more reasonable to me. So I, I, I'm not, but the position that people think that they are seeing reliable evidence of interventions, that's the position I'd be skeptical about. And, and there are a lot of people like that. I mean, even a majority of people. Who yeah. Say, I mean, I guess I, I, I wouldn't dismiss the possibility of that. Like, uh, like, like if I met such a person, I, I've, I've never had a conversation with such a person about that very thing. No, I had one once uh, Liz Brunig talked about this sort of like religious experience that she had in a night owls that I did with her. I found it pretty compelling actually. Um, uh, uh, but um, so I, I guess like, I don't, I, I, I don't, um, but, but it's not, it's not so much about intervention as a kind of um, like, like a kind of awareness, right? Like a kind of awareness of the presence of God. Well, that um, would be, caused in part by their being a you know making themselves available to be aware of right i mean that they, they would yeah. participate in that process somehow right that would be an intervention right so, somehow 
Um, right. But in any case, I get. I guess I don't feel. Uh, uh, to me, that's not like beyond the pale or something. Um, but you still might. I mean, I, I would still disagree in the sense. Of, if yeah, you say, yeah. You know, do most people have you know substantial evidence that they themselves are seeing interventions of this sort? I, I would have to say no. That that sounds quite unlikely. Right. Uh, or like like um, yeah. I mean, I I I, I guess I, I I feel less sure that that's so unlikely, but. I think um, um, let's take a thing where I just reflexively believe it without thinking about it. those are the always the best cases where you don't really put much effort. Like I think that vaccines uh, make you less likely to get COVID, right? And I have put like no effort into thinking about that. Right. I'm just trusting you know people well, around me. But well, there's lots of people who don't believe that, right? So then does my belief go down? You know, am I am I like slightly less credulous? Well, and I think the answer is no, not at all. Or most people think their nation is substantially more moral than the rest of the world, or that uh, more justified in in its actions on the international stage in terms of more morality or something. That would be another sort of claim that. Uh, I would find implausible that still most people do seem to believe it. Right. I mean, but that's like a little bit like the claim that like most people think like their family members are like better than other people, which I'm very sympathetic to because I think that too. So, <laughs> but, but it's hard um, to believe it's true on average. Right. Exactly. It's impossible to believe it's true on average. <laughs> right. but, but, I'm, but I'm sympathetic to the claim. Like I get how people right. think that people don't like, like, so I don't think people are crazy. I guess I just, I don't think people are crazy. Uh, I don't even think like, like, I guess I, I think it's possible, like the vaccine case, I less know what to think about. The other ones are more comfortable to me. Um, uh, like how can we're, some but, people but be wrong? What we're looking for, for this rationality or disagreement issue is a case where in some sense, most people disagree with you and you don't, you can't really claim some authority relative to them, but still you're going to disagree with them. Uh, and so that would be the sleep or the evidence of God example but no. uh, they might give. And but if you don't accept those, then of course you you aren't finding counterexamples to uh, the the modesty argument. He calls it that right. But I, like I accept that with the vaccine case. I, I think for me, it's the, the the problem with this argument is that you slide back and forth between disagreement and difference of opinion in ways that uh, for me that that is a very very significant difference. So if I say most people have a difference of opinion with me about something, like. I'm virtually indifferent to that. But like, if somebody disagrees with me in the sense that I'm having a conversation with them and they think the opposite thing of what I think, then I have to take them seriously and I have to argue with them and I have to convince them or be convinced or whatever, well, as, as long as the argument well, so, goes. So the, the theory that I worked on is in yeah. terms of mutual awareness. So it doesn't require a conversation actually starts, but it requires that you each be aware of the other person's opinion and mutually aware of these awarenesses, et cetera. That that's what common knowledge means. And so the question isn't, are you arguing at the moment with somebody who believes they have evidence of, of God intervening in their lives? Is Are you aware that they think that? Are they aware that you think what you think? And uh, is there a mutual awareness such that if you started the conversation, you would both start off with this mutual awareness? You, you wouldn't you wouldn't be surprised to find out what they think and they wouldn't be surprised to find out what you think, then you would, but you would start discussing. So let me just tell you something that's not going to have a big impact on you persuasively, but I, I, you know, I read some, years ago, I read some of this disagreement literature, not the part that you contributed to, but, and my instinctual response, and this is not an argument with my instinctual response is all of these people have framed the problem wrong. It's like people, it's like people going out on a date, but they're, uh, neither is willing to like 
really give much of a signal that they're interested in each other. So they're just like doing these little like signs. And then you're like, yeah, that's dating or something like, like there's such a thing as arguing. That's the real phenomenon arguing where people are talking to each other. And the one guy says, no, you're wrong because of this. That's the thing. But somehow people don't want to study the actual thing. They want to study this weird hypothetical case where like, what if two people sort of knew of each other that they, but they didn't actually have a conversation about it. And how would they start out? But the real phenomenon is arguing and it, it's essentially stretched over time. So people, it's important to the phenomenon that people change their positions over time. Uh, and, and they do ch- in fact change, like that is in every argument that I've ever seen, they change in the sense that people say different things over time. So their position is right. changing. It's dynamic. It's a dynamic process, right? And so you're talking about this static thing, disagree, and you're calling it disagreement. But there's this other thing, which is where rationality really sits, which is in the dynamic process of disagreement. And if you want to understand it, that's the thing you're supposed to be talking about. So we're running out of time for today, but we can at least set up the uh, issue here for a future conversation. Okay. <laughs> so uh, my understanding in talking to you previously is you have substantial reservations about the usual decision theoretic framing. Uh, but, you know, the usual attempt to understand argument, even in philosophy, as I understand it, is via decision theory. That is, you imagine agents who have actions they need to take and they have beliefs and values. They combine the beliefs and values into actions. Beliefs are updated on information and beliefs can also be updated on the information of talking to other people, arguing with them, reading about arguments, and knowing what other people think, et cetera. And, and I've contributed to that sort of literature using a sort of standard decision theory framework to analyze how someone will update their beliefs upon learning that someone else has a different belief. Uh, so um, you, you seem to be planting the flag of saying that whole framework is misdirected or mis- inappropriate for the analysis of disagreement. <laughs> Uh, well, in that in that framework, you've talked about everything but conversation. It's like, look, you could find out what other people think, not because you're talking to them, but somehow a little slip of paper falls down that, you know, and, oh, I learned what Robin thinks, and now I can no, update on that. No, but the question like, is, when people talk, I mean, we, we do analyze conversation in these, in these theoretical frameworks, and conversation is analyzed as, you know, alternating things people say, where each time they say something, they are picking some symbols out of a space of possible symbols. And when you hear those particular symbols, you update on their mental state, uh, having learned that they said the symbol versus other. So it is the standard statistical inference framework in the context of conversation. And in fact, there's a lot of analysis of conversation exactly of that form. Like people have calculated how many bits per word there are in a typical conversation that is you know, how much can you anticipate what the next word will be out of the space of all possible words? And, you know, that framework is quite useful. So, I mean, I think when I'm, what I'm thinking about when I'm speaking is like how to persuade you, right? And what, what I can get you to think, um, but also what I can get myself to think. Um, And, um, and, and I, and I have a kind of vague goal of being guided by the truth while maintaining the, as long as I can possibly maintain it, the stance of disagreeing with you as a tool to that end. So I'm trying, as I said, that's the thing I said in the beginning, I think it's what I'm trying to disagree with you. Is it rational for me to disagree with you? That's the thing I'm doing is disagreeing with you. 
Um, so it's not a question of like, I'm not trying to like have, you know, be fixing, figuring out my beliefs, um, but by, by bouncing them off of you, I'm like, and and thus the disagreement would be like a, 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 an accidental upshot of it. I'm 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 actively maintaining it. So, so. um, I, I think we should stop soon. And there's something yes. else I wanted to say, but so I'm going to let you respond. And then I'm going to um, say the thing, other thing I want to say. I, I just, I want to acknowledge conversation is complicated, but we we should just distinguish sort of the beliefs you have in your head from the words you say and the stances you take and the conversational moves you make and uh, your overall conversational strategies. Surely conversational strategies consist of anticipations of the moves you will make, the stances you will take and the responses other people will have to all that. But that's none of that's inconsistent with your also having beliefs and yeah, that I think we can the talk beliefs about are beliefs. relatively uninteresting. That is people believe all sorts of random stuff. That's like not very consistent. And the more interesting and more stable thing is what they will say, or even more so what they will write. So, so that's certainly in defiance of the usual decision theory framework. It says that when you go, when you leave the conversation to go make decisions, it will be the beliefs you take with you. And that's what will influence who you vote for, or what job you take and, all those things. And so when we're trying to influence somebody's future actions, we're trying to influence the beliefs they will have after the conversation. But anyway, your other point. My other point is just, I just wanted to note that you are in this conversation, in this last conversation, like playing the role of um, systemic policeman where you're like, look, we have a system. We have a usual framing for dealing with this problem. And you're trying to do the do-it-yourself approach. (laughs) So this recapitulates the the framework of the book. (laughs) I mean, I think that whenever you're defying the usual system, it you should notify people of that tax. And I try to do that consistently. That is Yeah, you, you often notify me of it. <laughs> Indeed. So <laughs> I, I don't I don't if, if you know that you are defying the usual wisdom on something, I think you should still pursue your argument and, and try to persuade people, but you should acknowledge that fact, people. You should if you shouldn't try to trick them into thinking that what you say is the usual view if it's not. So uh, yes, yeah, I want, and, and that the fact that something is a contrary view sort of sets up what kind of conversational moves or arguments you might make regarding it, right? You might expect, say, a criticism of the status quo if you're going to be arguing for an alternative. Uh, that'll be one of the things you expect. So there's a certain kind of like, um, kind of like deferential act that you think has to be done where it's like where you pay your respects to the, to the, uh, the status quo? It's more the fundamental argument, the fundamental you know argument rule, which is when you argue for something, you should identify some of the best arguments against it and tell people what those are too. Uh, that's the honest way to argue for something is to both give the arguments for and against it. And so certainly, if somebody's not aware that your view is is the contrarian view, then you should tell them that. That's something that would inform them that would change their mind against it. Like it in most people's minds, it is, and therefore, again. You shouldn't necessarily just give all the arguments you think are good arguments. You should also give the arguments that other people might think are good that you might think are bad and then tell them why they're bad. Then you'd have to talk for a super long time before you let the other person talk. So I think that's a bad plan. I think you should give your (laughs) best argument and then see what the other person says and not think that you can anticipate what would be the best (laughs) arguments for them. Well, it's about at the timescale. Of course, you can't give all arguments in a a short time. But in the course of a longer conversation, you should at least point to and, and give someone the chance to pursue it. So I, I often like try to, at the end of even my talks on prediction markets, I give a list of here's, here's a bunch of objections. You know, you could, you can mention one of these if you want. I don't go through them one by one, but I say, here's some common objections and you might pick one of these and ask about it. Anyway, it's been nice talking. Yeah. Totally.
till we meet again. Okay.